0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Once upon a time when America was quite literally defining itself, a man named Thomas Jefferson started a sentence this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's something we've heard a thousand times, but when Jefferson wrote it, It was revolutionary. The prevailing view at the time, says historian Lynn Hunt, was that people were not the least bit equal, not along racial lines or gender lines or class lines. Hunt says when it comes to class, people thought the lower classes, they did have emotions, but they were, she says, too brutish.
1: They were humans, but they were closer to animals.
0: Hunt is a distinguished research professor at UCLA and author of the book Inventing Human Rights.
1: Their passions had got the better of their reason. They didn't have sensibility in the way that the superior upper classes did. So it was a deeply held view of the world that there was a kind of natural hierarchy. Uh, look, we're all loved. Downton Abbey that that was about that was about the early twentieth century. Where what was good about the aristocrats of Downton Abbey was that they were beginning to see in the early 20th century that servants were real people. Hunt says it's important to understand that human rights have not
0: always been with us. Indeed, it was at the end of the 1700s that the very idea was being dreamed up. I talked to Hunt last year, but the moment she has studied so closely actually has a lot to teach us today. So for a few minutes, let's travel back to the 18th century to meet a woman who you might fairly label a celebrity, Madame du Châtelet. She was brilliant. She translated the work of Isaac Newton into French. And in doing so, she made a comment on Newton's work that turned out to be a major contribution to physics. She was also scandalous. She had a husband but carried on an affair with Voltaire. And she had a curious mix of views when it came to her fellow humans. Not surprisingly, she believed that women were entitled to a lot better education than they were generally provided. She argued passionately for more equal treatment. When it came to her own servants, though, equality wasn't even on her radar. Madame du Châtelet considered her male valets so lowly that she didn't think twice about undressing in front of them because, according to historian Lynn Hunt, she didn't think it was a proven fact that valets were men.
1: People were used to living in what we would call highly deferential societies, that there were people who were at the top, there were people at the bottom, there were people in the middle. It was better to know your place. It was better not to push too hard. And the aristocracy, Madame de Châtelet was one of them, the aristocracy was sort of naturally superior. But a
0: revolution was coming, actually, two revolutions, which brings us back to Thomas Jefferson, whose statement about the fact that all men are created equal raised a very uncomfortable question.
1: Can all people really be educated? Actually, I think we now believe, yes, they can, and that that's incredibly important. But that was not the idea before the 18th century. The idea was that some people should be educated because they were capable, and other people didn't need to be educated because they were peasants, and why did they need to be educated?
0: Hmm. Uh, You mentioned Downton Abbey before, and the fact that, like, at that point, the upper class was starting to realize that these servants were maybe real people. Um, but you also saw in *Downton Abbey* that uh, people were willing to talk about secret things in front of people that were there, and at the same time, kind of not there. They were a little bit like uh, wallpaper.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and you know that attitude persists in many ways for a very long time. What? I found interesting about the 18th century was the beginning of a notion that's, that was going to cast questions, was going to raise questions about that entire vision of the world, that there's a natural hierarchy. I, I think that has largely fallen apart now, but you know, there's still the issue in our society, our supposedly terribly modern society, about whether immigrants who don't know how to read and write, who can't speak English... Uh, who seem very different from us, are actually truly equal. So how then do we
0: get to that famous line in the Declaration of Independence that I quoted before, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal? Like, how did that happen? And how did we get to a point where someone would not only put that in writing, but also say it's self-evident? Like, obviously, you know, everybody knows that.
1: Well, this is an incredibly interesting question. How could they say that these were self evident? truths. You know, I think it's important to say that there's not one single answer for that question. There are some long-term developments like the rise of science and new ideas about what human reason can accomplish. There are some medium-term developments about how people live their lives, which I myself have paid a lot of attention to and think are extremely interesting and important. But there are also some very important short-term things that happen the colonists decide they want to break from Britain. They need to have a rationale. Using the sort of tradition of British liberties is not the greatest rationale for being independent from Britain. And so the short-term thing of what, how can we justify independence and what's going to be the basis of the government that we're going to have forces them to kind of crystallize this whole set of longer-term, medium-term developments, into a declaration, something that will galvanize opinion. Hmm. You
0: also make the argument that part of the rise of people thinking, well, I mean, I, maybe everybody does have human rights around this time, is something kind of unexpected, Um which is sort of the rise of the book, and not just any kind of book, but that people started reading and loving novels. You want to talk a little bit about, like, why that was
1: important? You know, I the novel in general, but it's, it becomes especially important in the 18th century because that's the period when it really takes off in terms of publication and in terms of, of public interest. But in general, I think the novel is actually of an extremely fascinating form. It is still the case in the world that we live in that novelists can be subject to attack, to imprisonment, to being mm-hmm. banned. There's something about that form that drives authoritarian figures nuts. Mm-hmm. And this is extremely interesting. In the 18th century, it's not so much about authoritarianism. It's that you have the... the increasing publication of novels, they get people incredibly emotionally involved in the lives of characters. That is, with people they are never going to meet because they're fictional right so they're, In I principle, know. they're never <laughs> going to meet them. And so they're they're learning that even you know an 18 year old girl, the servant girl Pamela in the novel of that name of 1740 has emotions just like the reader has mm-hmm. and their readers include, lots of men. It's not a female genre. which It's a little bit more so a female genre now than it was in the 18th century. It was very much a male genre in the the 18th century. And people kind of identified Mm -hmm. through the novel Mm -hmm. with people they were never going to meet. And I think this is a very important process of learning that everybody is psychologically similar. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you have, I'm guessing, not just
0: different genders reading... Um, novels like Pamela, but also different classes. So you're having aristocracy devour novels about people of lower classes and realizing, you know, like you said, they they love people too. They're, you know, crushed by things too. Their children get sick too and all those kinds of things.
1: Yes, and I, and I think it's really hard to grasp how significant this kind of psychological back and forth could have been in the 18th century. For me, one of the true proofs of the importance of this form is that the abolitionist literature, which only begins to appear towards the very end of the 18th century, almost always takes a kind of novelistic form. Hmm. So freed slaves, when they write, they're incredibly... kind of moving accounts, what do they do? They are essentially kind of novelizing Mm -hmm. their life experiences. And people identify, therefore, with this ex-slave in a way that they could never have possibly imagined identifying with slaves in the past.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Cara Miller, and I'm talking with Lynn Hunt, a distinguished research professor at UCLA and author of the book, Inventing Human Rights. So Thomas Jefferson, who I essentially quoted from uh, when I read the Declaration of Independence, is now thought of as someone who did not necessarily uh, treat people equally. And yet he wrote this sentence that clearly everybody should be treated equally. Um, How was it reconcilable to him that he's writing this stuff and yet obviously he knew he could look around and he knew he wasn't treating everybody equally around him?
1: Right. Although to give Jefferson his due, because I think he's truly one of the greatest political thinkers that the United States has ever had, to give him his due, he was profoundly agitated on the subject of slavery. Yes, he was a slaveholder. Yes, he maintained his slaves. Yes, he had relationships with at least one of his female slaves, Sally Hemings. We know all of that now. But he at the same time was agonized about this he lived in a slaveholding society he could not imagine overturning it he did however totally support the abolition of the slave trade in 1806 1807 which the british inaugurated and the united states followed and he did argue in favor of abolishing the slave trade on the grounds of of basically of human rights that it's really not right to enslave people right. so even the slaveholder that was Thomas Jefferson was troubled by this. And, and that's one of the things I think is so fascinating about the 18th century. People make these statements like the Declaration of Independence or the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen in France about uh, inalienable rights and the equality of all men. They don't really understand what the repercussions will be of making those clear declarations. But one of the huge consequences of these declarations is that it leads immediately to a huge amount of discussion, both in the United States and in France, about, well, who exactly does that mean? Mm -hmm. What about women? Mm -hmm. How can we have slavery? Uh, What about servants who never have the right to vote in most places until the end of the 19th century? What about people who don't have property, who are excluded from voting in most countries, also well into the 19th century. So they have no idea that just saying all men are created equal and they all have rights is going to lead to a huge amount of debate and discussion that no one saw coming. Hmm. They weren't having that debate before. They have the debate after these declarations. Do you think we've come a long
0: way in terms of human rights, or do you think people in the future are going to look back at us and think...
1: Boy, you know, much as we look at Jefferson and think, boy, they sure had a long way to go. I think both things are true. I think Mm -hmm. we have come a long way. Mm -hmm. I think that, again, once you advance rights, once a group gets rights who didn't have rights before, when you look back on it, you're like, how could this be? I mean, look, I'm a historian. I read a lot of history books. I, of course, was extremely interested in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Even now, when I read about the way African Americans were treated as late as 20 or 30 years ago, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I'm kind of speechless. Mm-hmm. I lived through that period. Mm-hmm. I was in college during the 1960s and the civil rights marches. We were all incredibly upset about it. In retrospect, that, that we were right to be upset, but it, you, the upsetness only occurs at certain times and in certain places. It doesn't happen just because it's unjust. I
0: interviewed a, a former history professor at Princeton, um, Nancy Malkiel, several yes. months ago, and she's written a yes. big book about this.
1: Yes, this, this wonderful book. Yes, yes, that she's about written.
0: coeducation, right. um, particularly I think in the Ivy Leagues, but but in other uh, other places too. And um, the story she would tell from I think she started in the fall of sixty eight or sixty nine as a professor, like a very young professor at Princeton, and the story she would tell about what people would say to other people what professors would say to female students was shocking i mean and this happened in her lifetime she's not talking about like ancient history or something i know
1: i know <laughs> it's you know it's one of the one of the problems of course with those of us who are, are getting older is that we went through this period in the 60s of enormous changes and enormous discussion and debate and upheaval etc et and we lived through certain kinds of changes which You know, frankly, if we when we look back on them now, we're like, real. I mean, could this have really been true? I mean, especially when when one thinks about, for example, the civil rights era that you know, people were being hosed down and dogs set upon them and beaten and even assassinated because they said African Americans should have the right to participate fully in our society. You're, You're kind of like truly could this be the case? Mm-hmm. But it was. Mm-hmm. It was. And it was, of course, also the situation for women. It's This is, this is why what, what you said was so true. We look back and we say, how could this be? And yet we also have our struggles, which will come and which people 30 years from now will say, how could that be?
0: Hmm. We tend to view human rights as mostly sort of a
1: steady upward trajectory. Do you think in general that's right, my view is that it is very much two steps forward, one step back. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think right now, to, in my view, we're living in a time in which, in the United States, some fairly large portion of the population is, has been upset for a very long time about the kinds of changes that have taken place. And this is their moment uh, I don't think they'll actually be able to roll back the the rights that have been gained. Uh, at least I, I hope that's the case. But I think you can't have the expansion of rights and then just have people sit by and say, oh, that's just great. Because right. for some people, it's deeply threatening to change the social order of the South, for example, which is also in some ways the social order of the whole country in terms of race and African-Americans, has, it has been a staggeringly difficult struggle. And, and there have been gains. And when there are gains, there are people who are very unhappy about that.
0: Hmm. Lynn Hunt is a distinguished research professor at UCLA. She's also the author of Inventing Human Rights, A History. Lynn, thank you so much for this great conversation.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
0: I talked with Lynn Hunt last year about human rights. And you might have heard us mention an interview I did about colleges that went co-ed in the 1960s and 70s. We've got it for you at our website, innovationhub.org.